Jesus prepares his disciples to endure hardship as they wait for his return. One of the mistakes that preachers make is by beginning their message by asking the congregation if they remember last week's message. You should not do that. Uh, it's fine to say something like, you may remember what we talked about last week. But if you say, do you remember last week's message, we just start to feel bad. So parents of small children are like, I don't even remember what I ate for breakfast. Don't ask me about last Sunday. So I'm not going to ask you if you remember where we were in the Gospel of Matthew last time I preached here. I didn't even remember. Uh, I had to ask Mako. Uh, he checked the spreadsheet. He, he tells me that we finished Matthew 23, and I've spent three years waiting to get back to this spot to preach Matthew 24. And this is a bit of a personal journey for me. Um, I started preaching the Gospel of Matthew in December of 2015, SIBC. So we had just called Jason Seville to come and be senior pastor there. And so I moved to kind of being the, the guy who would preach periodically. So I, I just started opening Matthew's Gospel. Uh, in 2016, when we planted WSBC, we were in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Was anybody there? 2016. Go ahead, raise your hand. Who was there? 2016. Okay, a few of you. As we planted this church, uh, we would take breaks periodically to open books like Ecclesiastes and Genesis. Luke preached through the book of James, uh, I don't even know all the places that you guys have been the last three years. First Corinthians, I think, recently, right? Um, I don't mind the gaps. Uh, not everybody will experience the whole series, uh, probably. Um, I think that a, a sermon is more about what is happening between the individual and the Lord on that particular day, at that particular moment. It's not primarily about the accumulation of knowledge over time. It's about how God reveals His Word by His Spirit, and most significantly, by His Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I say all that to say, I'm 63 sermons into this marvelous Gospel of Matthew, this first Gospel, and it's a distinct joy for me to open it with you again this morning. I, I've wanted to be here for the past three years. I didn't expect there to be a three-year gap between Matthew 23 and 24, but I imagine that the last three years, a lot of what has happened is not what we were expecting. But I think that's important as we dive into the text this morning because so much of our lives hinge on what we're expecting, don't they? When we talk about what we're expecting, we're talking about the future, about what's going to happen in our school, what's going to happen in our work, in our family, what's going to happen economically and geopolitically in between countries and their relationships. It'd be nice to know, wouldn't it? 
We're very personal. What's going on in our own bodies? It's something I've thought about the last couple of years more than ever before. What, what kind of health challenges might arise for us? We, we want to cry out just for a little reliable information about the future. It'd be so helpful, wouldn't it? The future is so important to us. And because of that very human reality, it's not surprising that Jesus talked about the future so regularly with his disciples. As we turn to Matthew 24 this morning, we're beginning the final of five extended teaching sections in Matthew's gospel. Matthew basically arranged the teaching of Jesus. Jesus was constantly teaching. He arranged that teaching in these five sermons. You could think about them as five sermons. They're often called the five discourses in Matthew. Well, every, every one of the first four ends with talking about the future. So you may think about the Sermon on the Mount. You know, how does the Sermon on the Mount end? Well, Jesus tells them that a storm is going to come, and it's going to come down on the, the house that you've built. And, and if, the, if the house is built on the sand, then it's going to collapse. But if it's built on the rock of his word, it's going to stand. Well, that, that's Jesus talking about the future. Well, the fifth and final one that we're, we're starting this morning, the whole thing is about the future. The entire thing. Jesus is answering the question for the disciples, what should you be expecting? So I want to look at it this morning. Uh, the first three verses of Matthew 24 are going to give us the context. Uh, I would just want to look at them very briefly to kind of set the stage for you. And, th and then I'll, I'll give you the outline, the big idea, and, and we'll dive into the text proper. But ju just look there, Matthew 24 Verses 1 through 3 says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now we're dropping right here into Tuesday, in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, in a sense, before his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Uh, he and his disciples were staying outside of Jerusalem. They would come in each day as Jesus would teach in the temple courts. And we see here the disciples, they're marveling at the impressive architecture around them. On the temple mount there, they're pointing them out to Jesus. And Jesus in verse 2, he just completely bursts their bubble. He tells them that all of it's going to be destroyed. So he's making a prophecy here that would be fulfilled about 40 years later, A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple. There's a Jewish revolt that happened in AD 66 against Rome's rule, and then Rome sends a, a general to crush the rebellion. It was, it was an incredible battle. I mean, overwhelming odds that the few Jewish rebels faced, and, and they held out for quite a while. But eventually, uh, the, the city falls, and there's a, there's a famine, a fire, a horrific slaughter 
a people that ensues. The, the population of, of Jerusalem was swelled at that time, and, and the, the Jewish historian Josephus, he estimates that more than a million people were killed when Jerusalem fell. But, but I, wanna, I wonder if you can kind of picture the scene here, that they're, they're walking out of the Temple Mount through a gate in the wall, and they, they would walk down into the Kidron Valley, and then up the Mount of Olives, which gives you an impressive view of Jerusalem. And the disciples ask this follow-up question. It's a question of chronology. It makes sense that they would ask this. Tell us when will these things be? So the, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? Now, in asking this, I think we can assume that they think that that's all one event. They think the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the age and Jesus' return and the setting up of his eternal kingdom, it's one event, okay? Um, keep in mind, they don't understand nearly as much as they're going to understand just a few days later when, when he dies and then rises again and then has that six-week period where he teaches them. And then eventually when he rises into heaven in front of their very eyes and an angel says, no, Jesus is going to come back the same way that he left. So, Ah, oh, their eyes would have been open at that point to understand the age in which you and I live, which is the church age, the age in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So they're going to understand a lot more eventually. They're limited right now. But Jesus basically in Matthew 24 is going to help unpack these two things for them. The, the, the calamity that's going to come in their own generation, that they need some information about, and then his eventual return and second coming. So as we interpret this chapter and what's known as the Olivet Discourse, we've got to pay special attention to verse 34. This is the interpretive key. So, so look there in your copy of God's Word. Look down to, to Matthew 24, verse 34. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So I understand that to mean that what he says from verse 4 to verse 33 all have a reference point in the first century. The generation he's speaking to, so AD 30 to AD 70. But as we read through it in just a minute, you're going to be like, hold on, hold on, hold on, Mark. Some of this stuff he's talking about sounds like it, it points way beyond that, and you'd be right. All right, the, I don't usually start off my sermons with a, uh, uh, a little, little mini lecture on biblical interpretation, but this is so important, guys. I mean, if, if you want to understand biblical prophecy, you've got to understand the idea of multiple horizons of fulfillment. And the way I always illustrate this is when... when uh, Megan and I were younger. Uh, we used to drive out regularly to Colorado. We would drive across the U.S. on Interstate 70. And the most boring drive in the entire world, I'm sure, is driving across the state of Kansas. I'm sorry if you're from Kansas. There's nothing in Kansas. It's, it's, the highway, you, just, you can take your hands off of the car wheel, as long as your alignment is, is kind of good, because the, the road goes straight to the horizon and you drive for 10 hours, okay? Now, as you try to stay awake and you're doing this, eventually, as you get to eastern Colorado, from 100 miles away, you can see the Rocky Mountains. 
And when you see them, it is like, I mean, you're so bored by that point, but you're like, I cannot believe the front range of the Rocky Mountains comes into view. All right? Now, when you're looking at the front range, it just looks like mountain, 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 mountain. It just looks like a line of mountains. Well, when you get up into those mountains, those mountains might be many, many miles apart from each other. Right? Some of them might be stacked up right behind each other. You can't tell. That's biblical prophecy. You're looking, this happens to us at Christmas, right? We read biblical prophecies at Christmas. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. And if you keep reading in Isaiah 7, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's talking about a baby in Isaiah's time. And we understand it to also be fulfilled in Jesus. There are multiple horizons of fulfillment. So, all right, mini lecture over biblical prophecy. Hope that that's helpful. It's going to be necessary as we jump into the text. So, so let's read uh, the entirety of it now, uh, or at least verse 4 to 35. That's how much I plan to do this morning, and then Lord willing, we'll finish it next year. All right? Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. They say, look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as the light comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All right, here's, here's a one-sentence summary. I think it summarizes the text. You may want to write this down, talk about it later over some Shalom Baal. Jesus prepares his disciples to endure hardship as they wait for his return. Jesus prepares his disciples to endure hardship as they wait for his return. And we'll consider that in five points. So five things Jesus tells us to help us prepare. That's where we're going. Number one, Jesus tells us not to be led astray by false teachers. Jesus tells us not to be led astray and we see that right away in verse 4 there. He says that, no, let no one lead you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So people claiming to be the Messiah, they, they did in fact arise in those tumultuous days leading up to 70 AD that I talked about, and we've seen this many times in history. The, the largest cult in China called Eastern Lightning uh, it, you know, ironically, it takes its name from this passage in, in verse 27, which is so weird to me, I just have to say, because the point of that verse is just like you see lightning go from the east to the west and you can't miss it, like it's impossible not to see it, right? It, you're not going to miss Jesus' return, that's the point. Anyway, Eastern Lightning teaches that Jesus actually has returned, and you may not know it, and is, is a, a woman from Hunan, uh, I think actually living in the U.S. right now. Anyway, and not just false Christs. Look down at verse 11. Many false prophets will ar arise and lead many astray. So, so these are people claiming knowledge of the future and teaching false things. Notice again that it says they will lead many astray. So these are professing Christians who are led astray. A, a sister that was part of this very church uh, got entangled recently in a, in a church, it's a Korean cult called Shin Chongji, uh, Shin Tiandi in, in Chinese. Um, and, and that cult teaches that you can't understand Matthew 24 and, and the book of Daniel we read earlier and all of the book of Revelation it, without the teaching of Lee Man Hee, uh, an elderly pastor in Korea. So, so he's... He's the, the witness referred to in, in Revelation 11, but basically, without his teaching, you can't understand any of this. Okay? You, you need special knowledge mediated through this person. Uh, if anybody ever claims to have special knowledge you need apart from this, you just run the other direction. All right. The, the, the reason we have the revealed Word of God is so that you can understand what is true, and check for what is false. That's why one of the things we believe here is that you should constantly, I mean, you come listening to, listen to sermons with, with a soft heart, yes, but an active mind, 
So you accept what I'm or anybody is saying from this pulpit only to the extent it matches what you see in the text. You should week by week go on, yep, these guys are not very creative. I, they're saying what this is saying, and they just trying to tell me to obey it. But that's what you want to look for in a church. That's what you want to expect from healthy teaching. That, that, that phrase, to be led astray, is a, it's a really interesting phrase. It, it means to be guided in the wrong direction. So here, come this way, come this way. You may remember the old children's story of, of you know, the, the, the nine-year-old boy who he's on his way to school and, and he meets some bad characters who point him towards Pleasure Island. Oh, come this way, don't go to school. It'd be much more fun to come this way. The thing about false Christs and false prophets is that they don't announce themselves. Initially, they coax, they sympathize, they gently lead you in the wrong direction. And the thing about us as human beings is we seem to have this tendency to overtrust our own discernment. We overtrust ourselves. We, we, we also seem ever ready to settle for temporary pleasure. Oh, these people are so nice. They're so nice to me. They're taking such an interest in me. Well, is what they're saying true? We're slow to ask that question sometimes. So, friends, protecting yourself begins with listening to the right voices. Don't listen uncritically to the wrong voices. You know, the books you choose to read, they're not innocuous. Your Spotify playlist matters. If you ever, do you delete songs? I don't even know if Spotify is what you guys use. What are the kids these days? I mean, do you, do you, like, are you just taking the next TikTok video? Just take whatever it is, you know, or, or do you ever go, no, I don't, I don't want that. I, I, my, my whole family uses the same YouTube account. Um, and I, I had to figure out how to go in and start clicking the little dots and say, I'm not interested in this. Stop feeding this sort of stuff to my family. Did you do that kind of stuff? You know, the TV programs that, that you choose to watch? Do you ask yourself, is this helping me think about things that are good and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable? Friends, the voices that you listen to matter. Don't assume that you can't be led astray, that your, your heart and your thinking can't be formed by, by what you're taking in. How about the people that you invite to your inner circle of friendship? Maybe just a word to, to young people who are here. You're in the midst of forming relationships and, and deciding who to trust in life. It's an extremely important process. You should do it with care. The people who are willing to tell you the truth, even when it hurts, are worth like a million likes on Facebook or whatever social media you use. Like someone who's willing to say, no, that, that's not a good choice you're making. Love, I don't want to get off on this, but, but love has been redefined. We took a good word called love and we redefined it to mean affirming whatever choices I make. What a terrible definition of love. Like whatever you decide, I'm just going to give you the thumbs up. Yeah, well, that's, good. that's good. That's not love. So think about the voices you're listening to. A final note here. The reason faithful pastors beat the drum for Bible reading in their churches 
isn't so that you can prove yourself to be a good Christian. We, we get no bonuses if our, if our people like make it through a Bible reading plan or something like that. I can assure you there's no, there's no bonus. Um, there's no award ceremony for finishing your Bible reading plan. April is a great month to get back into that one you started in January. Like, go ahead and get back on that horse. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, I'm afraid. He was afraid of something. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So the first way we prepare for the future is by heeding the danger of being led astray by false teachers. But Jesus gives us a second way to prepare. Jesus tells us not to be alarmed. Not to be alarmed. Look at verse 6 again there. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of the birth pains. First-time parents almost always go to the hospital too quickly. Uh, this is a note to Joe and Shay. Where are you? Right, anyway, um, it, uh, Megan and I did that with Carolyn. I shouldn't embarrass my daughter, you know, uh, talking about her birth. But anyway, they told us don't come too early to the hospital, and there we ended up uh, down at Don Lu, like uh, uh, almost a full 24 hours early. It was a, it was a terribly uh, uncomfortable night for Megan. Uh, you have to be patient through the birth pains. Easy for a husband to say. Uh, Jesus says that when you see cataclysmic stuff happening in the world, don't be alarmed. He doesn't mean don't care. He doesn't mean don't do what you can to serve and help, but he does mean don't be alarmed. I hope this is one of the ways that Christians in Shanghai were a witness during the pandemic, not being alarmed. Of all people, we should be the least alarmists because we know the future and we know who holds the future. There's that, that keep calm and carry on, that, that motivational poster from World War II in Great Britain that's spawned like a thousand memes and, and variations, you know. Um, how do you keep calm and carry on from a secular humanist perspective? Right? Why should I keep calm and carry on? Why should I not be alarmed? Maybe I should be alarmed. Well, what a Christian believes is that our, our, our biggest problem, our greatest problem, is not any earthly crisis that we could face. It's not viruses, it's not cancer, any health issue. It isn't political, has nothing to do with what's going on in Ukraine. It's, it's, not, it's not relational, it's not family strife, it's not office politics, career setbacks. A Christian knows that all of those things are as nothing compared to the much bigger problem of having offended the justice of a holy God, of not being right with our Creator. A Christian understands that the, that problem makes everything else pale in comparison. But a Christian also understands that because God the Creator and the Judge has graciously taken action to solve that problem by sending His Son Jesus, so that if, 
If any of us will turn away from our sins and trust in him, then we are pardoned. We're forgiven. We're reconciled to him. With, with that problem solved, there's this massive sigh of relief. It, it, it doesn't mean that we don't have any more problems, certainly. But it, it, it means that that, you know, when you're saved from that problem, oh, it relativizes every other problem. I, I wonder if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian. I wonder if you're really alarmed about your relationship with the God who made you. If you're not reconciled to him, that should get your utmost attention. So brothers and sisters, one, one application point for us here is to begin our mornings in prayer. Do, do you start off your day? It doesn't have to be long. But if you will develop the habit of entrusting the burdens of the day to him, whatever is like on your mind as you, as you rev up for your day, whatever it is you're facing, if you will just pray and give those things to God, it will help you to not be alarmed with whatever happens. So second way Jesus prepares us, by saying don't be alarmed. Let's consider a third way. Jesus tells us not to let our love grow cold. Jesus tells us not to let our love grow cold. Look at verses 9 to 13 there. Scan down to the text. They describe a, a tribulation. It's just a word for adversity, difficulty. Notice in verse 9, there, there's a tribulation that comes from outside. So he talks about the delivering up of Christians, presumably to the authorities, who kill some of them. It's happening in parts of our world even today. It says that they will be hated by the nations for Jesus' sake. And it's often because Christians are misunderstood. Uh, they're, they're despised and hated because they don't get with the program, whatever the program is around them. In the U U.S. Uh, and Singapore, where I've spent the last several years, I've noticed in both places a desire for social respectability is a major snare to Christians. I, it's not that none of us should care what other people think of us on some level. It's just often well beyond our control if people despise Christians. You know, if you don't affirm people's sexual orientation and gender identity, will get blasted. You, 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 can, you can give whatever speech you want to about how you actually care about them and you're not trying to be X, Y, or Z. Uh, at the end of the day, the, the, the rule of the day is you either affirm what's going on or you're a hater. You're a bigot. We, we should care about that. We don't like that reality. I, I'd like to try to persuade you that that's different if you'll give me time. But if our desire is social respectability above all else, it's going to lead us into trouble. But that's the outside. There's also tribulation from inside. Verse 10 speaks of those who will fall away and betray and hate one another. I think this tribulation from inside is much more difficult to bear. It reminds me of my first year in China, a group of 12 new believers, and one of them, a guy, basically decided that I was a bad guy for some reason. I really don't know what I did. But he became convinced I was a bad guy. 
and, and he led a group of them away. It was incredibly painful. It was crushing in many ways. So attacks from outside, from inside, and then look at verses 12 and 13. I think we have something of a conclusion here when it says that because lawlessness is increased, because sin is increased, both externally and internally, the love of many will grow cold, but he who perseveres to the end will be saved. What does he mean here that the love of many will grow cold? Could mean either love for God or love for others, probably both. The whole Christian life can be summed up by love, can't it? But why would an environment of hardship and tribulation cause the love of many to grow cold? You know, sometimes in the Bible, hardship and tribulation is, is described as having good spiritual fruit. You could go to Romans chapter 5. We're told there that it produces endurance and character and hope. What's the difference in the two situations? Well, it has to be faith, right? It has to be the, the, the lens of faith that we should view our hardships and our tribulation through, believing that, yes, our, my life is a mess right now, but, but God is working things together for His glory and, and my good. We cry out, God, this is hard, but, but thank you for saving me and for the hope of heaven. Well, creeping unbelief has the opposite effect. It has a chilling effect on our spiritual life. We to interpret the tribulations in life as ominous, signaling that we're actually forgotten or abandoned or alone. And our love can grow cold. It reminds us of Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Love can be abandoned. It can be left behind. It can grow cold. What do you do if you feel like your love for God is growing cold. What can you do? It makes me think of marriage counseling situations where there's a coldness that you can feel between the spouses as they sit before you. As the counselor, basically what you try to do is, is help them go back in time to, to an earlier point where the love wasn't cold. You, you try to Help them remember a time where there was life and warmth in their relationship. Do you remember how you used to talk at length about the events of the day with each other? Remember how you used to take an interest in what the other person was interested in? Like, you don't like badminton, but they like badminton, so you start playing badminton. You remember when you used to do things like that? Um, you were cultivating a friendship. And then you try to urge the couple to start doing those things again. Well, friends, it's the same thing spiritually. You know, the very next thing Jesus says to that church in Ephesus whose love has grown cold, he says, repent and do the works that you did at first. Brothers and sisters, hear Jesus urging us the same way. Remember when Bible study had a, an interest and a vigor for you? And remember how you used to turn conversations to spiritual things? You were eager for ministry opportunities when you planned times of prayer to get alone with God, when it was a joy for you to give yourself to serving in the church, well, go back there. Do that again. Take, take your spiritual life like that, that campfire that's flickering and, and, and you blow some oxygen and put some more fuel on it. 
Do that with your spiritual life. That's the third way Jesus prepares them. Telling them not to let their love grow cold. Fourth way Jesus prepares us. Jesus tells us to persevere in faithfulness. So verse 15 and following, uh, we get many of the specific instructions that they're going to need that will during the time when the destruction of Jerusalem is imminent. So it talks about the abomination of desolation there, or the abomination that causes destruction. It's language Daniel. He pointed to a future act in the temple that would provoke God to bring destruction. And that's actually a pattern in Israel's history. You may remember the, the sins of the priests uh, uh, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who despite the holiness of the offering and the tabernacle, uh, they despise it. So God brings the Philistines against Israel in judgment. Or we could remember Jeremiah's temple sermon where he tells Israel judgment is coming because of their idolatry in the very temple. So we have this recurring pattern where Israel commits flagrant idolatry in the presence of God in his own house. And as a result, Yahweh leaves the house and sends the Gentiles to destroy it. So one last time, this will happen. And when judgment is imminent, uh, the Christians are to flee. Uh, All those instructions there make the urgency clear. Don't go back for your cloak or possessions, just go. The call to pray that it's not in winter is because that's the rainy season, which would make the the, the roads muddy, difficult, and not on a Sabbath, probably because you could not buy any provisions for the the journey on the Sabbath. You can imagine how difficult such a flight would be for pregnant women, nursing mothers. Again, the warning goes out about false Christs and prophets, which will be active in those days. Times of crisis are always seized upon by those who want to lead others astray. So Jesus tells them it's essential that they not listen to them. But just listen to him. Verse 25, see, I've told you beforehand. Now the lens at this point seems to zoom out from the first century as Jesus assures them that no one will miss his second coming, as I said, for as the lightning comes from the east, and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So you're not going to miss it. The return of Christ will be unmistakable. That's also the point of the the vultures over the corpse, kind of a macabre image, but it's a clear sign of what's happening. So don't worry about missing when it comes. Just focus on the perseverance you need through the hard times. Hardship's inevitable. As one commentator put it, sustained faithfulness is the only remedy to swirling disaster. So where is it that you and I need perseverance in our life? I think a lot of this comes down to our mentality. Uh, I, like, I like hanging out with James Z, who used to be a, a member of this congregation. He's, he's in Singapore now. He's an ultra marathon. So he's headed to Hong Kong next uh, to do a, a 70 km run. And um, I like him because I feel like I get exercise credit by osmosis. <laughs> like between James and I, we're, we're going we're gonna to run an average of 35 km next week. But if you talk to James about his long runs, uh, he, simply, 
he simply intends to finish one way or the other. I, that's basically his plan. I'm going to figure out a way to finish. Not dramatic, chariots of fire, um, no matter how fast. He just plans to persevere through the hardship. Well, you and I need to bring that kind of thinking to our spiritual lives. And when Jesus, again and again, he said things like, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Paul was preaching in the early churches constantly, through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God. So we set our expectations rightly. And we say, I'm going to plan to be a vibrant Christian, not just this year, but 30 years from now, if the, if the Lord gives me length of days. I'm going to plan on running all the way. That's one of the reasons why the prosperity gospel is such a plague on the church. It takes marathoners and turns them into people expecting a short walk in the park filled with complacency and ease. No, you've signed up for a long race. It's, it, it's not too long. There is an end, and you can make it to that end, but you're going to have to purpose to persevere. So do you have that mentality this morning, friends? See, I've told you beforehand. Jesus tells us to persevere in faithfulness. Fifth and finally, Jesus tells them, tells us, that he's in charge of history. We talked at the beginning about two horizons of fulfillment. That's really useful as we consider verse 14, as well as verse 29 and following. So I, I take these things as having a first century fulfillment, as I said, and a fulfillment that's still to come. So look at verse 14. Jesus tells us that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This had a fulfillment in the apostles taking the message of the crucified, buried, and risen Savior all over the known world in that generation. And by known world, so someone says, look, okay, come on. The gospel wasn't taken to Vanuatu. I had a friend from Vanuatu. It's a great island out there. Anyway, it wasn't taken there in the first century. That's true. But this language of whole world, sometimes in the New Testament, it, it means the Roman Empire. So when Paul in Colossians 1 says, all over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. He, he doesn't mean every place that had yet to, to be reached. So it had a first century fulfillment. But it also points to the worldwide spread of the gospel that is ongoing today. So that as Revelation 5 pictures it, there are going to be people from every tribe and language and people and nation who will stand before the throne of God on the last day. Similar thing in verse 29 to 31, a dual fulfillment. So the language of the sun and moon being darkened, the stars falling from heaven, the powers of the heavens being shaken. That's typical language in apocalyptic literature where regime change is happening, where, where governments are falling. It's described as cosmic upheaval. The sign of the Son of Man appearing in heaven with power and glory, it may sound like the second coming, it is, but it too has a first century meaning. So you may remember Jesus before the high priest saying, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There's a sense in which the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem 
signaled the vindication and enthronement of Jesus. Israel rejected the true temple, the true mediator between God and man. And 70 AD was the sign of God's judgment on them for this. Verse 31 speaks of the gathering of the elect, all those that the Lord will call from all the corners of the earth. And the work that began in that age and continues even now as we gather this morning. But of course, all of this also points to a last and final coming of the Son of Man. The gathering of his people together. Jesus wants us to be ready for that. He uses the illustration of the fig tree in verse 32, which loses its leaves in winter, as many of our trees do here in Shanghai. You know, they all fall off like one week, one time, you know. Um, well, that's a sign of the, the season. So as they could use the fig tree as a mark, summers around the corner. They were to use the events he described as a signal of what's about to happen. In verse 33, he says, he is near at the very gates. And that means that Jesus could return at any time. Now here's the question I want to think about. What effect would these words have had on a people facing hardship? What effect would, would hearing all this have on people who were suffering? Well, there would have been practical help of knowing what to expect and how to avoid danger and how to persevere in faithfulness, but over and above all of that is the great reminder that Jesus, the one they worship, the one they're following, he's the one in control of it all. He's the one in control of history. He predicts it. He describes it. He assures them that the gospel will triumph, the mission of God will succeed, and that in the end, he will return. He will certainly come. He's standing at the very gates. Friends, this is a great assurance as you and I look out on our lives, isn't it? The fact that we don't know the future doesn't mean it's unknown to God. Quite the opposite. The fact that things seem sometimes out of control for you, uncertain, doubtful, it doesn't make them so. But even more amazing than that, he's ordering the future to care for and to provide for his people. There's that little phrase in verse 22, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The elect means those chosen by God, those he's working to save. Those grace believe in him. Well, everything that's going on is being ordered. Sake. Do you believe in him this morning? Then trust in his providential care. We talked in the beginning about our longing for some reliable information about the future. Friend, here we have it. It doesn't tell me how my daughter's going to do in college as I send her off in a couple months. It doesn't tell me whether or not I'll be able to return to Shanghai, like I hope. You can list a bunch of things that doesn't tell you about what's going on in your life. But none of them are as important as what it does tell you. Don't be led astray by false teachers. Don't be alarmed. Don't let your love grow cold. Persevere in faithfulness. Because 
Jesus is alive. He's in charge of history. And he's coming soon. Let's pray together. Father, you've been so good to us in so many ways. We're grateful for this word. We pray now that you would help us to apply it and to believe it in our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.